Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And here we're discussing the film Darby and the Dead. And joining us today is our special guest, Roger Neal. So welcome, Roger. Hey, Roger. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. We appreciate it. So, (laughs) Roger, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in the entertainment world? Well, I'm a composer. And, uh, you know, that is what it sounds like. I write music. I write music that goes with, uh, with movies, in the case of Darby and the Dead. Uh, television shows. I work on records. I work with recording artists. I've done lots of stuff. Worked in musical theater. I've written musicals, music for games. I'm doing some yeah. of that right now. Oh, awesome! Commercials, and uh, you know, pretty much whenever somebody calls me and they want me want music, I'll just do whatever they they have. So that's uh, <laughs> what I do. Television and film composing is what I'm um I'm most well known for, and yeah. uh, that's my background. Excellent. Awesome. Very cool. Can you tell us about any specific projects you've worked on? Yeah. So I've been doing this a while, like yeah. by a while, I mean, years and years and years and years. The films I'm best known for, I think, would include 20th Century Women and Beginners and Marie Antoinette. TV shows I started out with, uh, the biggest one I started out with was King of the Hill, the animated series. Did that Absolutely. For 13 years. Um, also Mozart in the Jungle for Amazon and just a billion other things i mean yeah. it's just uh, on and on but those are probably the, the biggest titles yeah the, yeah we were talking before the show and you know we have some friends who are huge king of the hill fans yeah. and, and so uh they were very excited that we got the chat with you today and also we do a lot of uh improv so i know you also worked on don't think twice with mike yes. Rubigula, which is awesome he was a great guy to work with so what was your path for your career how'd you get started yeah, well, I've always been a musician since I was a kid. Um, and this is not often the case for many of my colleagues, uh, surprisingly. But I was a musician since I was like eight or nine years old. And I, you know, I pretty much displayed a certain aptitude for it, for music early on. What, what did you play? <laughs> my first instrument was flute. Ah, that was, nice. I played yes. that in high school and college, did too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember I was like in fourth grade or so, and yeah. um, there was an assembly where the school concert band played and they, they highlight all the instruments. Like here's a clarinet, here's a trumpet. Mm-hmm. And I thought the flute, for some reason, I, I was attracted to that. Like that's where I'm going. That's gonna make me famous. <laughs> uh, with a big time. And uh, so, yeah, so I took to that and I played, you know, I played it and I, I just, I took to it quickly, you know, I advanced yeah. very quickly. I just was like, you know, kind of demonstrated that this was my thing. I was pretty, pretty convinced by like age 10 that this is all I'm going to do which is fortunate in hindsight because I developed no other skills that are valuable. <laughs> this is it. And in my case, you know, I started playing as a kid and uh, I think two, two important things happened. One is that as I was playing flute as a kid, I just, I happened to find like some, some staff paper at my house. Staff paper is like the, is the lines that you use to handwrite notation on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who had it because there's no musicians in my, ha- in my family. It just happened to be. So I just started writing music just as I was playing my instrument, just like writing stuff. And I just assumed every musician did that. And it wasn't until later on that I realized, no, it was not, not the case. So, um, <laughs> so I just started writing music right away and um, kind of took to it. Then the other important thing happened just a few years later as I started to transition into adolescence and I started to realize as much as I loved playing the flute and uh playing in orchestras um playing rock guitar in a band is really where the action is and that's (laughs) that's just gonna get me some dates um which actually did not come past I did not get any dates but I did I just started playing like in in bands when I was in high school and so it was like the two things there's always like the classical music I was fascinated with uh I've also picked up piano and was pretty serious about that for a while so I'd be playing Mozart flute concertos and I'd be playing Beethoven sonatas at the piano and then I'd be playing punk rock with my bands yes and that was my adolescence excellent yeah the full gamut yeah did you go to college for music as well yeah I beat college to death. <laughs> Kids at home, do not follow this path. But uh, <laughs> I did go to music school. And it's interesting, um, again, when I think of my colleagues and, and who are film composers, and I, and I know so many of them, and some of them are, 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 good, are good friends of mine, there's a whole bunch of them that have formal training through conservatories, such as me, and a whole bunch of them who don't at all, that are completely self-taught. And the ones who are, you know, who are working are all doing interesting work. So mm-hmm. um, it's... 
I decided to go get my formal college degrees because I was just drawn to it. I liked school. I did well. And I just was excited about all the stuff I wanted to learn. But other people who I follow different paths and it's just, it, it all depends on what speaks to you. Now, in my case, what happened is I was pretty much a headbanging punk rocker when I was in high school. And then I did want to go to college. I didn't want to study music at, at university. And flute still remained my strongest instrument. I was most advanced on that. So I auditioned for a bunch of music schools, including USC, where I got in as a flute player. It was exciting because USC School of Music is, is one of the best in, yeah. in the world, not the world. Uh, and it's very exciting. Lots of stuff is going on there, which I was able to take advantage of. But one thing I found when I, when I arrived at music school is there was about 40 flute players at USC. And I was probably the 38th best one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was at a crossroads. Like, what do I do? Do I, you know, do I just like try to kick into high, high gear and become good enough to be professional? Which when I considered it, it didn't seem all that appealing. But what, what I think the nice thing that happened is that one of my teachers and my music theory class, where you learn about the nuts and bolts of, of music, this teacher pulled me aside and just said, you really should be in the composition department. That's where you belong. And it was a very kind um, kind thing for him to say. And, and uh, that's what, so I transitioned over to being a composer and that just was the fit that felt right. Excellent. So I did that. USC School of Music physically is right next door to the USC, USC School of Cinema. So even back then, I was already involved in doing um, music for short films and yeah. filmmakers and trying to figure out how to, how to make that work. I, ha I was not committed yet to a, to a career in that, but I was already mm -hmm. you know, sort of uh, experimenting. But then a weird thing happened along the way. It's a long version of the story, but the short version is that I met a professor at Harvard University who liked my music and just casually asked me what I was doing after I graduated from USC. And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you come to Harvard and get a PhD? We'll pay for it. Wow. Nice. So it was the proverbial offer I could not refuse. Yeah. Uh, there's some more twists and turns of the story, but that's how, how it went. So, yeah. um, and honestly, it was very appealing. It was very appealing indeed, mm -hmm. because I just really wanted to um, learn more. Yeah. Learn more about how to write for orchestra, how to write for electronics, learn mm -hmm. more about ethnomusicology. While I was in a graduate student at Harvard, I got to go to East Africa and study music. Awesome. Um, do all these like really, really great things, taught a course on jazz and things, things of that nature. So I got, I have, I think, nine years of college. That's excessive. <laughs> Not necessary. <laughs> But it was um, fun. <laughs> it, was, it was super fun. It, it was super fun. And in hindsight, people will ask, well, well you know, certainly, surely you use all that, all those studies in, in, in the music that you create um, professionally. And my answer is sometimes. Yeah. But usually not. Yeah. Usually not. Usually, I look back on my, uh, particularly my graduate student days as something I did for a while that was awesome. Yeah. And then I moved on to something else that was awesome. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's how that worked out. Yeah. Um, and then the the last part of the story is um, when I was at Harvard, I realized something. I realized that you could use that Harvard pedigree name to um, apply for grants and fellowships yeah. and scholarships. And uh, they were just giving that stuff away. Uh, <laughs> and uh, one thing I applied for was a grant that was being sponsored by BMI, the Royalty Organization, called the Pete Carpenter Fellowship. And this fellowship was designed to bring young composers who were not in Hollywood, who were not in the movie business, to come to Los Angeles and and meet composers and learn the skill set. So I received this grant. I was the first one to get it, and it still exists today. It was wonderful. I got to spend about six weeks in Los Angeles and uh, meet with these wonderful composers, Michael Kamen, Quincy Jones. Wow. Um, and the TV composer, Mike Post, who was the sponsor of this grant, he and I took a liking to each other, Mike Post and yeah. I. At the time, he was the king of, of TV music and remained the king of TV music for decades. And he said, so what are you doing when you graduate from Harvard? And I said, I have no idea. He said, why don't you come work for me? Well, that's, that's how I started. That's pretty awesome. That's a, yeah. It's an amazing story. Definite pattern. Awesome. So... I know you mentioned all the different kinds of music you studied and you sometimes use it, sometimes don't. You work across a lot of different genres that you kind of listed already. Do those different musical styles help you in each of those genres or just help you accept a broader range of projects? And then once you're in those projects, is your process different, like from a video game to a, t to a TV show to a movie? So there's been a few really, really wonderful choice jobs I've, I've 
projects I've been invited on that have really used specifically my my classical training. Okay. Where I, as a composer, as a conductor, as a historian, as all these other things mm-hmm. like that, Marie Antoinette and Mozart in the Jungle are those two where I just yeah. I really felt like everything I learned, I was able to to somehow bring to bear um, yeah. to these projects. And, and that was super fun. But then also I just become, as, as I've um, kept working professionally as a film and TV composer, I think I've been able to narrow my um, the sound that I'm okay. known for in a way, which has been helpful. Because yeah. I, you know, I can do a lots of different. I can do lots of different things, but in some ways, I, I think of myself as kind of a character actor. I can play <laughs> lots of different roles, but I'm known for like a, a certain kind of role. Yeah. And so that's where I am now. Okay. Where I'm a I'm a classically trained musician, but I lean heavily on on electronics and yeah. synthesizers and programming and beats and and hybrid sounds of of, of sound worlds that that I create. Yeah. And that seems to be my my current milieu and what I'm known for. Okay. Excellent. That's very cool. So when you're working on King of the Hill, for instance, and, you know, there's so many themes, right? How much variety do you get from episode to episode to play with those themes? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question because um, when I first learned about the series, I really campaigned to try to get invited to be the composer. Now, there were a number of composers who worked on the show. I was the main one, and I did the majority of the episodes, but other people did uh, other, you know, other episodes. So I think altogether I did a little, little over half of all the episodes over 13 wow. years. So when I first campaigned to do it, uh, I all I saw initially was just what's called a pencil sketch, which is just what it sounds like. It's a piece of animation just in pencil that Mike Judge made, the creator of the show. And that just gave me a basic idea, and I wrote a bunch of music that... I felt kind of fit the show and sent it into the people at 20th Century Fox. And they they showed interest. And what I learned later, which was very illuminating to me, is that there are a lot of people who who submitted music to to try to get on that show. Yeah. And and there was a common mistake that they made, which is so King of the Hill, for those who don't know, it's it's set it's set in suburban Texas, um, in a town that's more or less based on Austin, the Hill family and the and the very conservative and funny and and kind of odd and and uh, a lot of the composers who were trying to get on board the show wrote music that was kind of redneck sounding mm. oh, yeah. and i wrote music that was more heartfelt yeah you know and i think that that struck the chord that i yeah. that i wasn't i wasn't making fun of the characters i was having right. fun with the characters mm-hmm. right and that that was um that got me the gig but also it it, it, it taught me a lot about how to uh, how to approach all scoring in a way. Yeah. Especially with, with animation more than anything else. Uh, when you're writing music for animation, King of the Hill is, an, is an animated series, those of you who don't know it. Uh, so when writing music for animation, what music can really do is add heart mm-hmm. and humanity to these to these drawn images. And that, that's really helpful. Yeah. So even though the series itself is a animated comedy, I more or less, as a composer, I more or less approached it as if it were a heartfelt drama. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, I think it sh- I think it helped like make those characters feel very well developed. Like it doesn't feel like caricatures right. as much on King of the Hill. They feel like real people. Like real um, characters. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I'm sure the music is a big part of that, that it wasn't written as a jokey thing. Yeah. Well, also, I must say, I mean, thank you for saying that. I must say the show was ex- was extraordinarily well written. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, mm-hmm. With wonderful writers. And mm-hmm. I, and that is why the show um, is still around today. Maybe yeah. you still love it, you know, because yeah. it's just, it's just, it's just, these are characters you want to know. And, and they and it, it's funny and goofy, but but surprisingly profound from time to time. Yeah. It's just, that's why it lingers. Yeah, totally. So how does that different than when you're composing like, you know, Borderlands or a video game that's like so long, right? <laughs> There's so much music to compose, but it's sort of different in that it's a playing experience. How is that? How do you score a video game? Yeah, it is a different approach because I, I've, as a film composer, I've really developed a skill about how to write music that fits the dynamic image I'm seeing. And by dynamic by dynamic, I mean when you when you're watching a, a scene, things change in time, and you write you write the music so that it, it is also changing in time in a way that enhances whatever scene we're watching. But with a video game, it's a different approach because you're kind of cre- creating a universe, right? To walk into, you know, here's the sound of this universe, and it sounds like mm-hmm. this. But the um, 
the music it changes based on what the player is doing but it's 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 a less dynamic thing i, I think than um than writing scenes for a film because with a film there's there's nuances to change just just every second and one could do that for for games but the way games are programmed it's not quite the same thing you you you're writing music that um that's designed to get more or less intense based on what's happening sure. but it's kind of like a modular thing like things happen and music you know bumps up and music things bump down depending on uh, on on the player activity it's a different challenge a broader way to sort of explain what's different is it with game music it's kind of like you're you're looking the composer's looking at a really beautiful picture and you and you write music that would go with that picture okay and uh hopefully it works i should have one one thing by the way that most but not all of my game work has been with uh my very good friend Jesper Kidd, who's a game composer. So um, Borderlands, for example, is um, is of that nature. So, uh, okay. but also, you know, I mean, uh, Jesper is one of my close friends, of which I have quite a few who are in the industry with, like, who I collaborate with from time to time on projects, mm -hmm. and and I love doing that. I, love, yeah. I really like it a lot. Very cool. Do you have a day to day then, or is it constantly changing when you're working on different projects, um, in between projects, or? On those projects, is your day-to-day -day consistent at all? You know, when the pandemic started, we all yeah. shut down and we all we, we all changed the way we work by yeah. you know, doing Zooms at home and, and all that. Us composers, for, is this is how we've been working for decades. Okay. You know, <laughs> I, I'm in my home studio right now. Yeah. I keep kind of like banker's hours. I start okay. at nine o'clock every day, no matter what. Yeah. I really do. Because if I don't, I, I otherwise I have terrible discipline. So I need to yeah. really force myself, sit down and write music. And uh, and at six o'clock, I'll either feel like I have I've done a good day's work yeah. or not. But that's kind of how it works. And, and oftentimes I'm here in my studio, day after day after day, never leaving, <laughs> never talking to anybody, <laughs> uh, just trying to get music done. Other times, though, doing it on what is needed for the project, I'm I, going to recording sessions at outside studios uh, okay. sometimes I'm, I'm uh going to the set where things are being shot and that's fine that's fine because because most of the time i really am just isolated doing my own thing right right so um <laughs> something to keep in mind for aspiring yes composers who want to do my work uh be prepared to be uh be on your own because that's yeah. sort of what it's that at one point do you start writing themes like writing the actual music is it um, early on or do you have to wait until you get like a first edit done so you kind of can see what the movie's about or how does that work of course it varies from project to project yeah. ideally the composer is brought on board early on and ideally for sure is, is the composer is brought on before even anything is is shot okay, oh, okay great that's happened a few times, not not every time. Uh, yeah. but, but what does happen? It's it's wonderful because then I I write music that the director hears. Mm -hmm. Um, and for a film, the director is my is my boss and my okay. primary and sometimes only collaborator. Mm. That person is the only person that needs to approve what I'm doing, okay. and that person is with whom I have form a relationship that um a creative relationship. So I write I might write some music based on our discussions or based on the script or and just preliminary ideas. And that's how that starts. Okay. However, more common is I'm brought on board later on, mm. brought on board after everything has been been shot. Mm. And then it becomes the first step is, is is kind of like how to solve the puzzle of this movie. Yeah, you need we need to find a sound, uh, a musical sound that that seems appropriate for the universe of this movie. And uh, and also how do I connect all the dots? What will require themes? What or who will require themes? And how will those themes return or get varied as the story progresses? Okay. That's an inter interesting process. Yeah. You know, you try to find the, the key moments. Uh, here, the character goes through this crisis at this point and this resolution at this point, and then this new crisis at this point. So I need to connect those moments somehow. So I need to write a piece of music that I'm, that's malleable enough that I can use it on all these locations, mm -hmm. but maybe still vary it. It becomes like this kind of a, like a game, like a crossword puzzle. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to make it all work. Very cool. Yeah. Also, you've been a composer and musician for some live events too, including, mm -hmm. I know you work with Air a lot, yeah. which, how did you end up getting connected with them? Because you've performed with them too, right? Yes, I've had yeah. as, as, 
as a conductor conducting orchestra for air. Yeah. Boy, that's also one of those moments where I I, <laughs> I do feel like I'm using all of my skills for this. And yeah. it's, it's just glorious. We're performing mm -hmm. with the with the LA Philharmonic at the Hollywood yeah. Bowl with air was one of the high points of my career. Just, mm -hmm. a, just a pleasure. Um because I don't normally do that. Uh, <laughs> that was my a... was one of my rock star dream moments to actually walk yeah. on stage in front of 10,000 people and be able to conduct an orchestra. This is, um, it's worth taking a second talking about them because I'm often approached by younger composers with questions about how to break into the industry and, and right. how to make connections, things of that sort. And one thing I will tell people, and it's, it's, it's certainly not um, just for composers, uh, is that the people who become important to you career-wise usually are not people that you're going to meet someday. Usually they're people you already know. Yeah. Mm from where you come from, no matter where you come from. I come from San Diego, which is um, close to Los Angeles, but culturally not at all. Yeah. When I was in junior high school, I'm not going to drag, I think I dragged this forever, but here, here's how it goes. <laughs> I was in junior high school playing flute in yeah. the band. And next to me was a clarinet player named Megan. We were pals. I reunited with Megan at my 10-year high school reunion. Oh, cool. And we became friends, and she invited me to a party at her house, at her apartment, came over and uh met she introduced me to a songwriter named andrew andrew sandoval who um was making an ep and he asked me if i'd write some some little violin parts for his ep and i did i recorded it in somebody's garage like in downey um, awesome just to say nowhere <laughs> um and you know it's just like the type of thing you do it's like yeah hey, you're a composer can you write some violin parts for my song sure so um so I did that. And it was like a nothing thing, just for fun. Yeah. There, the guy who engineered that date in that in the garage in Downey called me six months later and he said he was he was working with the band and he was in the studio in Burbank. Uh now Burbank is probably the least fashionable part of Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> so I had low expectations. And he and he said, I got this band, they're working, we're doing some stuff. And um they just want someone to come in and notate some keyboard parts for them because it because I don't even know why. They just wanted me to come in and notate. So I get there, and to my shock, it was this band that I had discovered like six months earlier just by buying a CD at Tower Records, and, oh I, and I fell in love with them, which was Air. <laughs> and when I first heard of this band, they were, they were this like really exotic, hip French band from Versailles, and I thought they were like, like just like from another planet. They were so interesting. <laughs> And I walk into Burbank and there's these guys from air um, and they asked me to do this, this thing where I notated some stuff and we just kind of hit it off. And next thing you know, I'm working on an album with them that took nine months. That's crazy. Wow. They asked me to write orchestral parts and choir parts, which I did. And we recorded them here in Los Angeles at Capitol records. And, um, and that led to me being invited to, to perform with them at the Hollywood Bowl and in Paris yeah. and do some recording sessions with them in London and all sorts of stuff. That's and so cool. it all comes down, boys and girls, it all starts from the Megan who I sat next to in band in seventh yeah. grade. So that's, that's awesome. how you break into Hollywood. <laughs> Sit next to Megan. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, I think that really shows, like people talk about, you know, Hollywood's all about who you know, but we have a lot of people talk about, it's about genuine connections you make with people. So it wasn't just like a networking thing. Like you were, your friends were like, hey, you know, I want to bring you in on this project or I want you to like, can you do this? So I think those genuine connections you make with people whether you expect to get something out of them or not, are really important. And just you never know when they're going to be come back into play. No, it's so true. You know? Yeah. And again, it's like you're, you're unlikely to ingratiate yourself with your, you know, some director that you are. Right. At, uh, they already got their people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you just you just meet people along the way, and you see meet people who are kind of at your own level of professionalism yeah. or you know pre professionalism, mm -hmm. and those are the people who with whom you um you figure it all out. Right. You know, you, you train each other. Um, you take you take risks on mm -hmm. these dumb projects. And next thing you know, hopefully, eventually it leads somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I know you've also worked with a bunch of famous musicians um, outside of air as well. Um, like, you know, Beck, John Legend, Michael Jackson, Spoon. What's it like to work with these musicians? And or is it just like a normal day for you or is this like still a treat? Well, it's always a treat. I'm, yeah. hell, I'm always, it's always a treat just to have anybody say, please do something for us <laughs> pay you, or not. You know, it's yeah, being a, being a musician is a 
dumb way to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> It varies so, so much. You know, I, I told this, just now told the story about air and they've become mm -hmm. my good friends and, and, I, and I love those guys. And um, other times it's just, um, you get a call from somebody, hey, John Legend has this project. He wants, you know, do you have time to work on it with him for a few days? Mm -hmm. You know, and and that's it. Yeah. So that's that was that case with Michael Jackson. It was an early thing I did in my career um, where he was on tour and he needed a piece of music, a big piece of orchestral music that happens before he enters the stage, like a big okay. bombastic piece of music. Yeah. And he had, there's a piece of music he wanted to use. And then he realized it was pub, it was um, not public domain. And so um, word went out to one person, to another person, another person, and just ended up falling in my lap for a variety of reasons to write something for, for Michael Jackson's tour, mm -hmm. which I did. And I got to um, record that with the Chicago symphony and choir. It's just like, oh, amazing. cool. But I never got the chance to meet Michael himself. So um, it was, I worked for Michael, but not with Michael. Okay. Interesting. And that's often, sometimes, sometimes that's how it works, you know? Yeah. Particularly now, you know, and more than ever, because right. now none of, us have, none of us have to be in the same location. So I can, I often work with people via Zoom um, mm -hmm. and sometimes never meet them. Uh, for example, if I may, just this last weekend, yeah. there was an award show I went to, it was the IDA, the Independent okay. Documentary Awards. And there's a film I made, uh, I scored last year called Sam Now that was up for an award. And I, and, I, and I love this movie and I loved working with the people involved who I never met in person ever <laughs> part, until until this weekend, well, even though crazy. we played a whole movie together. Yeah. <laughs> we, we met on Zoom. I made the joke. I finally saw them in person. We had a wonderful time um, at the at the award show at Paramount. Anyway, I said, uh, you know, I, I could have arrived here and I would, you know, I, for all you know, I was five, four foot nine. Right. You know? <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> uh, but that's how it is now. You know, yeah, you, yeah. You, you, you work with people around the world and um, you guys are in Chicago right now. I am here in Los Angeles with Darby and the Dead, the movie that um, just came out on Hulu. Yeah. Um, I have my own crew, people who I work with, um, a okay. small group crew. And I have one one friend, Amit Cohen, who lives uh, a few blocks away. And my assistant, Alex Redfern, who lives in, in the east coast of, of england um and my um friend um dieter hartman who um did a bunch of drum programming and wrote some music and he i don't know where he is uh i think he's in vienna or he's somewhere in fresno i don't know one or the other <laughs> um but it doesn't, doesn't matter anymore in a way you yeah. know it's, 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 right. it's um is which i think is great i think it's kind of a democratizing thing that, mm -hmm. that you don't necessarily have to come to los angeles or any place in particular to uh to do this this craft Totally. How does that work when you're composing with someone? Because Zoom itself is not a great program for playing music on, right? That's not what I've terrible. heard. Yeah. yeah. So are you just sending files back and forth? Um, how does that process work? Yeah, you send files back and forth. Okay. Uh, I might I might work on a piece of music for a scene, and then I'll send it off to, to one of my helpers and say, you know, I think this is good, but I'm kind of stuck. Okay. You take it over. I tell you, when it comes to collaborating, whether you're collaborating with other musicians or collaborating with the director who is, you know, your boss or the producers, mm -hmm. one main thing that's required is a generosity of spirit, yeah. hmm. you know, the ability to say, okay, my idea is good. Your idea is good. It's not a question of who's is better. Let's just figure out one to go with and let's move on. Yeah. Um, it's not about ego and uh, or anything of that nature. So when I work with other people, whether they're fellow composers or whether they're the director or whoever, sometimes I forget whose idea was who. Was, yeah. you know, who's, who, 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 who thought of that? <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's just the, right. the job is, is to create music that works. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to approach it. Any project where you just, you just it needs to be good at the end and sound mm -hmm. good. So <laughs> It's all about the result. Yeah. yeah. So, Raj, you're also recently become a member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. So, uh, well, congratulations on your Thank membership. You. Yeah. You know, that means you're literally judging people who win Academy Awards. How do, does that process work? And when you're watching a film, does that take you out of it? Or do you still get to enjoy entertainment? <laughs> <laughs> I do get enjoy entertainment. Thank you for asking. I'm concerned about that. <laughs> but both happen, you know, really both. Since I've been doing this a, a long time, you know, I've had a chance to work with with directors and editors and be on sets and work with actors and coaching them sometimes, which is fun. So you really get a after a, a long time of doing this, you, you get a real sense of how the process goes 
where, you know, what kind of decisions are being made along the way? What are the crucial moments? It's becomes more and more fun. So when I see, for example, I'll answer your question this way. If I'm seeing a, a film and there's a, a, a very moving scene between two people, I'm as moved as anybody else is mm-hmm. when I see that. But I also know that the first character said their lines in the morning and then they moved the cameras around in the lights in the afternoon the other character said their lines <laughs> then they moved the cameras and lights again in the evening time they did the two shot where they all said their lines together so, right. so i know how it's done you know <laughs> but but it really and, and, and that's fun i mean it's fun it's fun right. knowing that but that really does not um i don't think it diminishes okay. the pleasure i get just as mm-hmm. a as a consumer uh, of, of, the, of the film or tv show i'm watching but it does make me, uh, I think, better qualified to yeah. judge in the BMW Academy. I think I kind of earned it after after all this time. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Excellent. And, and now it's the season. Now we're like watching all these films all the time. And, I, right. and I, there's all these wonderful screenings. And I'm able to go to screenings here in L.A. that, that where, the, where the director or the composer or other people are there. And I can ask questions. And some oh, of them nice. are people I know. And some that's cool. I don't know. And it's, it's just this is really fun. It's an exciting time of the year. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to cool. be great. You might have touched on this with AR already, but do you have any moments from your career that are just a favorite moment or an unbelievable moment where you're like, I can't believe this is my job right now? There are a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I tell you, that AR concert, I worked on their album and then I then I was invited to do orchestral arrangements for this big Hollywood Bowl concert. And I worked on that for months and months and months where I'd write charts for these songs of theirs and send it back and forth. They were on tour and they would give me notes and the... And it was just exciting. Yeah. So finally, it's the day of the concert at the Hollywood Bowl. I had written music for a concert that was going to be about two and a half hours. And when I was informed that I had a rehearsal with the LA Philharmonic for 40 minutes. (laughs) What? (laughs) Which um, I've I've come to learn is not uncommon. Yeah. Uh, But I was... I got, I remember just getting on the stage on the, on the podium rather, you know, ready to conduct and just like starting the orchestra. This is for rehearsal in the afternoon. And I could not hear a thing. <laughs> it was just like a mush. Oh, and I looked down at my black shirt I was wearing and there were these streaks of white. Cause I was just like sweating so much. <laughs> and for that one moment, I thought to myself, I am out of my depth. I have <laughs> no business being here. Yet there he was. So I soldiered yeah. on and we made it through and it turned out okay. That was that was one of those moments though. It's, all, yeah. it's like one of those moments too, like where you, you off, I mean, I think everybody has a story where they're given this, the job that they're probably unqualified to do. <laughs> sure. And you just figure out how to do it. Yeah, then, you just have to. You realize, no, I guess I did. I guess I was qualified after all. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. We got one more question before we before we move on and specifically talk about the movie, Roger. Mm-hmm. And the question is, and you've already touched on this, but we're going to ask anyways, uh, what advice do you have for people who are interested in getting into either composing or even performing or just the entertainment world in general? I do spend a lot of time talking to young composers. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. And I enjoy that. And uh, yeah. either people I've, I've worked with as students or people who just find me. And, and, and I just, I know from having done that over a long time that I have some some perspectives which have proven to be true. Yeah. So hopefully I can share one or two right now. You know, I explained earlier my own um, career path that I went to school for a really long time um, and got a PhD. But when I actually started writing music for for television, which is my first professional work, I kind of discovered that I actually probably had enough skills at age 17 to do to do this. Yeah. work. It's not exactly true, but it's pretty close to being true. And, and in some regards, the, all the extra training I did was just to build confidence. I really wanted to feel like I I had depth. Yeah. I solved that problem, but uh, you know, that that, that was what it was all about. The lesson to take away from that is to have confidence in in, in what you do. Mm-hmm. If you're like me, I grew up just listening to so much music and 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 I had all these heroes that that I I just love so much whether they're composers or rock stars or pop people or uh, what have you who were so amazing who who their musical ability was way beyond anything I'd ever been able to achieve and still are. And I th- thought I needed to train myself to get that good, that good, that good. But it turns out, no, that all the, for the most part, all those people who I idolized, many of whom I've subsequently been able to um, meet and and call friends of mine, uh, which is wonderful. They also do like one or two things really, really well. Yeah. They don't have universal ability. You know, 
the great ones. They like do the thing they do well, really, really well. So what I take away from that is, and what how I impart that as, as advice to younger artists is try to develop something that's unique to you. You don't have to learn how to do everything. Just do something that's special. And it's probably something you already do. Even if you're, you know, a young person who is, you know, still learning their craft, when you find that secret thing that that you build your career, you look back at it and realize, oh, I had I, I was doing that when I was 13 years old. Yeah. And that's the thing. So it's having confidence in that one thing you do and just try to find something special. Don't learn how to do everything. Try to endeavor it. That's a that's a lofty, uh, reasonable thing to want to do. But um, just try to um, find a voice which is which is unique. And that might be the secret sauce. Well, let's get to our featured film. Today, we're discussing the 2022 film Darby and the Dead. It was written by Becca Green and based on the story by Winona Wilms. It was directed by Silas Howard, and it stars Riel Downs, Ali E. <laughs> Cravalho, Chosen Jacobs, Asher Angel, and Tony Danza. Yeah. So, Susan, can you give us a quick breakdown? What's this movie about? Ah, uh, yes. So, the star of this movie is Darby Harper. She is a high school student, and when she was really young, her and her mom uh, essentially drowned, and she was resuscitated, but her mom was not. And ever since then, she's been able to see and talk to dead people. She calls deados. And she sort of runs a side business where she helps them move on to the other side, resolve whatever conflict they have here that's keeping them here and move on. And understandably, she has a hard time fitting in at high school because I can't imagine it's easy to relate to a high school experience when you're also helping dead people move on to their to the afterlife. So we see her struggling with that. And then the movie really starts when the popular girl... Capri ends up dying and she then needs Darby's help to move on. And Darby has to then help her resolve the thing that she wants, which is her huge 17th birthday party. Um, so we watch these two interact throughout the whole movie. We also see uh, Tony Danza plays a former high school janitor who's passed away, who's sticking around waiting for his wife, who's still alive. And he and Darby are friends. They play chess and eat donuts, I think, every day at lunchtime, which sounds mm -hmm. great. Honestly. So we also see their relationship too, which is really nice. So, yeah, but we do want to talk about the movie and specifically the music, which Roger has, was the composer of. So, yeah, yeah, Roger. So, obviously, you chose this film because this is something that you uh, have been working on and just was released. Yes. However, can you tell us a little about your experience working on it? Yeah, it was um, it was a challenging film. Yeah. When I was first offered the film, the director, Silas Howard, who was a, a good buddy of mine, good guy, Described it to me in the following way. He said it was the Sixth Sense meets Mean Girls. Yes, yeah, that's totally. a, good, uh, yeah. a good description. And I think I'd add a little bit of Clueless uh, mixed in. Yeah, it's, it's, very it's, much. It's in some ways the least scary ghost movie yes. you'll ever see. <laughs> it's not scary at all. Um, yeah. It's not scary. Uh, it's just there's just ghosts and they're just hanging around. Yeah. Um, and our heroine Darby has this uh, special ability to communicate with them. The meat of the story comes down between her and and her frenemy, Capri, mm -hmm. who is the popular girl at school, who meets an early, untimely but not scary death, and then becomes um, sort of a um, an in between ghost, uh, not ready to move on to the afterlife. And she and Darby become we sort of co conspirators, yeah. And, and oddly, they sort of help each other achieve their own goals uh, within within this high school milieu. Oddly, the supernatural element, the ghost story element is kind of beside the point in a way. Yeah, it's really totally. more about high school relationships mm -hmm. and becoming your own person and yeah. moving on. And in some respects, I think the whole notion of the afterlife in this movie is, is, is sort of a metaphor for merely um, like trying to find out who you are as an adolescent yeah. and then moving on and growing up. So that was fun. And that's also part of like going through that process is part of the of what is required as a composer to figure out like what are the what are the pieces? How do you connect it all together? Um, you know, what are the what are the strands of the story? Because we knew that we were talking to you, Roger, you know, the music really stood out to me while we we're watching the film. A little bit earlier, you talked about your style of like blending electronic music a lot into your work. And that really showed through in this film. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really fun. Did did your background in you know growing up in rock music while you were in high school influenced that oh yeah 100 percent. yeah because there are there are some like really kind of killer rock tracks in this yeah, and yeah. Really <laughs> Definitely. two things worth mentioning one is this for so so the film was shot in south africa in cape town oh wow so it, doesn't it doesn't take place in south africa it just right. takes place in some school nowhere in particular but so, you know having that 
that visual style of being of having been shot then gave us a bit of a license to sort of make it create our own high school, if yeah. you will. Which which would have been different if we're in a high school in a specific location. Mm-hmm. Just a quick example: one of the movies I'm, I'm known for is 20th Century Women, which takes place in the early the late 70s in Santa Barbara. So that time and location became um, important to figure out how the sound what the music would be like. Yeah. Here we have like a more of an of a of an open a wide open world to figure out you know what, what's the sound of this high school. So that was fun. So I was able to sort of throw in a bunch of different disparate styles. Um, uh, rock pieces, some hip hop stuff, some some, and just also a combination of like weird sounds that I just grabbed and recorded and and cut and spliced. Yeah. But also, interestingly, this was it was a long process to do the score because because when I started it with with the help of the filmmakers, we we really wanted to play up the supernatural magical um, element of the story, yeah. and, and so to that end, we were I wrote a, a score that was highly orchestral. Okay. And it's like really big and grand. And I wrote almost the entire score in, <laughs> in that manner. And they, we all looked at it and said, yeah, this is exactly what we wanted. It's great. It doesn't quite fit. Yeah. Right. Which is an interesting, it was an interesting lesson. And what we discovered was that that sound, big orchestral, magical, Harry Potter-ish, if you will, and sort of, yeah. it was just too grand for these storylines mm-hmm. yeah so deep into the process we corrected our vi- our vision and went in a different direction and took out all that music and sort of rewrote everything from the ground up again in some ways it was, sometimes it was the same exact music i wrote for a 70 piece orchestra but then it ended up being just for like a, d- a drum kit and a guitar and bass yeah. and, some, and some weird synthesizers wow. with the yeah. same music that was a hard process yeah but, was, but ultimately <laughs> it was for sure the right decision mm-hmm. and i and i feel strongly that the sound of the score with all these hybrid elements fits the movie it fits these storylines really really well i'm very proud of it yeah excellent yeah anywhere i noticed the music it was never because it felt like it didn't fit i felt like it always heightened or complemented really well so um and it captured like it felt like i was looking at a bunch of high schoolers you know like going through typical high school stuff even though there was this ghost element the ghost, even the ghost, Capri was dealing with high school stuff. Like she was jealous that her boyfriend was dating someone else. She was missing this party. She wanted to go to the, like, she wanted to go to the game. Like, mm-hmm. so yeah. it was funny to watch like this huge thing happened to her, but it happened to her at an age where this, these are the things that were important to her. And I felt like it did that really well. It wasn't, it didn't feel like it was looking down on it at all. So yeah, so yeah. many, so many movies that the main cast is high school, right? Mm-hmm. They, they feel like that these aren't high schoolers. Like, but this movie actually feels like these really are high schoolers because yeah. they are all obsessed with their relationships and mm-hmm. their friends and how all that makes yeah. us together. So I totally see your point, Roger, about how, you know, the, the scale of the story was very local about the, about those friendships and those relationships. Yeah. It makes total sense. Yeah. It's a very relatable story, I think, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, you know, for, for younger people, which is our yeah. target audience, obviously. Right. I think it's easy. It's easy to get into and sort of understand it, and yeah. and, and to feel like it's um, feel the drama and the emotion of it. I think it's really well done. Mm-hmm. Roger, do you have a favorite scene in the film? Ooh, there are a lot, but I think that yeah. the hardest one I'll tell you was this one. Is there's a scene where um, Capri is is already dead at this point, and only only Darby can see her, and Capri is falling around at school because she's trying to she's trying to get our heroine Darby to to agree to throw to yeah. throw this big party. So yes. Capri is trying to coerce Darby. <laughs> and um what happens is Darby is in is in biology class and she's they're having to do like a this dissection yes. on a frog. <laughs> and um Capri, who only only is seen by Darby, is throwing this frog around and like trying to like, <laughs> embarrass her, trying to uh, trying to coerce her in, into uh, getting on board this conspiracy. So that that was fun. It was really yeah. difficult. Like this like uh because it had, because the music had to do the do these things where the frog is flying and it's like this like motion and then like Darby is trying to maintain oh nothing nothing happening here yeah. <laughs> it comes down and then it darts up again and it gets bigger and bigger and and all this like crazy stuff happens there's a yeah. lot of choreography and boy I wrote that piece like ten times I think <laughs> <laughs> to get it right. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic because it actually sets up my favorite scene in the film, mm-hmm. which is later when they're again having a fight, and 
Capri throws a frog at Darby and hits her with it. And she's like, I've been holding on that since science class. <laughs> yeah. And so the frog actually comes back later on. And I, yep. that got me a, that, a solid laugh out of me. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very funny. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Susan, did you have a favorite scene? Those are both great. I actually really loved when the frog came back. There's some really good comedy in this film yeah. too. Yeah. Um, like where you just like laugh out loud, but I thought the Ouija board scene was pretty, yeah. pretty cool. Um, making it fly around like a bird mm-hmm. and just like, I also, and then the scene right after that, where she's Darby's back at school and she's like, some people remember the weird stuff from the party. Some people are trying to justify in their mind. And some people didn't notice that part at all. <laughs> and then it's the guy walking by like, yeah, it was a killer party. It was yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably somebody, what would really happen. Somebody jumped in the pool. Um, yeah. I thought that was a really funny scene too, but there's a lot of really good comedic moments in it as well. Yeah. But, very sharply written. Yeah. It's a wonderful film, Darby and the dead. And I, and I, I'm just proud of it. Hope your listeners will will tune it in because it's really worth it. It's very entertaining. And obviously, like, we're not the target demographic, but I still really enjoyed watching it. Absolutely. I think it was really well written. Yeah, it's a really fun movie. Yeah. Where can people find it, Roger? On Hulu. Yes. Excellent. It's streaming now. Mm -hmm. We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Break That Fourth Wall. In honor of Darby and the Dead, we're going to see how well both of you know movies where the characters talk directly to the audience also known as Breaking the Fourth Wall. So, Roger, you're going to be playing against Susan. Okay. So, here are so the rules. Be, be kind, Susan. You know, you, you're <laughs> here. I'm a newbie. It's going to be a real cutthroat game. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> we'll see about that. So, here are the rules. I'm going to describe a famous movie that features characters breaking the fourth wall. As soon as you know it, shout out the name of that film. If you're correct, you'll earn a point. I have seven movies for you to identify, and so the first person's name four correctly will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? It's some Life in the Credits merchandise, so a shirt or a mug, something like that. Woo-hoo! Whatever you want. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Roger, are you ready to play? I'm so ready. Okay. Susan, are you ready? Ready. All right. Your first movie is in a Chicago suburb, one month before the Ferris Bueller's Day Off is correct. Sorry, I ruined it for you. Excellent job. I should have been more on top of it. Now I know what. Now I know the level of gameplay we're at. I'm ready now. (laughs) Man, read the rest of your description so people know what we're talking about. Just like that, but that movie is the is like the the famous breaking the third. Yeah, Yeah, so high school senior Ferris Bueller fakes illness to stay home from school. That is Ferris yes. Bueller's day off. Good job, nice Roger. Job. You're on the Ooh. board with one point. Okay, Susan. Come I got to step it up. <laughs> okay, number two. In 2005, eccentric hedge fund manager Michael Burry discovers the United States housing market is based on a high-risk subprime loans. The big and short? The big short oh, is correct. I don't think oh. I've I was just guessing. Yeah. You haven't seen The Big Short? No, I have not. I've seen it. I know. I've not seen it. Okay. Well, it's really good. I think I saw the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I need to watch it. I think I started on a plane once and didn't finish it, but. All righty. That's 2 0. Roger is in a good lead. Number three. In 1987, our protagonist lands a job as a Wall Street stockbroker. Or for L.F. Rothschild. It's going to be the Wolf of Wall Street. It is the Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) Oh, you stole that. (laughs) Good job, Susan. All right. Score is 2-1. Okay. It's a game now. Number four. In Aurora, Illinois, two rock music fans. I got it. I know it. Wayne's World? Yes! Yay! <laughs> you guys are Aurora. so good at I mean, how many movies are how many movies are take place in Aurora? So that's just a giveaway. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's true. true. That's true. I got Blues Brothers stuck in my head, but that's not even a fourth. They don't break the fourth wall. Also so not Aurora. Why, yeah, I know, but I knew it was Chicago. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So good job. Yeah. All right, so three to one. Roger, all you need is one more point to win. Here we go. Number five. The narrator is a man who is unfulfilled by his job in an automobile recall specialist and possesses insomnia. He attends a support group in order to, to cure his insomnia. However, when another imposter begins attending the same groups, they agree to split the groups they attend. In a flight home from a business trip, he meets Tyler Durden, a super- oh, fight club. Fight club oh. is correct. <laughs> 
Good job, Susan. Good job, Susan. I was was like, is this Fight Club? And obviously when you said Tyler Durden. Yeah, that was a good way. She she just said Tyler. I should have jumped in, but yeah. Susan, you got a fair square. Okay, three, two. All right. How many movies are left? There are two movies left. So you can tie it up here or Roger can win. Number six. Our hero is a dishonorably discharged special forces operative from Canada working as a freelance mercenary when he meets a woman named Vanessa. They become romantically involved, and a year later, she accepts his marriage proposal. However, he is later diagnosed with cancer and leaves Vanessa without a warning so that she will not have to watch him die. I don't know what this... Heck. I don't know what this Whoa. is at all. Did you get a hint before you abandon it? Give us a hint. I, I've, I've got more. Okay. okay. Keep reading. A mysterious recruiter approaches our protagonist and offers him an experimental treatment for his cancer. He's taken to a laboratory and injected with a serum that's designed to awaken his latent mutant genes in his body. X-Men? Oh, oh you're so movie? close. Oh. Uh, um, it is a character who talks yeah, oh, I know it is. a lot. Well, what's his name? Oh, it's um, Dead- Logan Deadpool. Yes, Deadpool. Susan Godson, Deadpool is correct. <laughs> all right. Okay, you got that fair and square. I was... I was <laughs> It's all classed on that one. Oh man, good job, Susan. That all right. horse race. Uh, this is very exciting. You've tied it up. Oh my god. Okay. Pressure. Three to three. <laughs> we have one movie left. Okay. Number seven. Roger, are you ready? I think so. Susan, ready. Okay. Number seven. Self-loathing sc- screenwriter is hired to write the screenplay adaption of Susan Orlean's *The Orchid Thief*. Adaptation. Adaptation. Oh. Is correct. Nice job, Nicholas Jones. Yeah, excellent. Gondry, I think. Maybe. Yeah, good movie. That. That choices. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And uh, nice job that we've covered on the show before. Oh yeah, we have. So, Roger, congratulations! Yeah, congrats. Nice job. Thank you. You (laughs) guys are good hosts. I'll come play party games anytime. Okay. Excellent. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us, Roger. Uh, Before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to plug? I've got some projects coming out. Let me, uh, two things uh, worth noting. It's um, got a couple projects for Cartoon Network. One is a new series called King Star King, awesome. which would be, I think we premiere it uh, Valentine's Day on okay. Cartoon Network. Great. Then I mentioned um, this documentary that I scored called Sam Now. That's going to yeah. be on PBS in May. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, and some that's good stuff. currently at film festivals now. That's right. Yeah. Making the circuit. Awesome. Excellent. Great. Well, good luck. Um, well, thank you, Roger. This has been an absolute pleasure yeah, to chat with you. Yeah, this was fun. It was really interesting. Thank you, guys. You guys are a hoot. Thank you for inviting him on board here. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I think everybody has a story where they're given the job that they're probably unqualified to do. (laughs) Sure. And you just figure out how to do it. Yeah, you just have to. No, I guess I did. I guess I was qualified after all. Who knew? (laughs)